Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Paul Horstead. Paul has photographed South Dakota's people and places for more than 40 years. He and his design partner, Camille Reiner, have published multiple books about the beauty and history of the Black Hills and the Dakotas and our national parks. For the book we'll be talking about today, he's worked along with Ernest Graff, or Ernie Graff, to create the book Exploring with Custer, the 1874 Black Hills Expedition, which has now been revised and is in its fourth edition. Paul, welcome to History 605. Great to be here. Thank you. Usually when we talk about history, we're talking, we're using texts or maybe artifacts to show change over time and the causes of that change. Uh, but you and Ernie show change over time very visually with uh, great precision, I think, in some ways with the photographs that you use. And in your work, you can see what's changed. And often, I think what's most striking about the books is what's not changed. Sometimes yeah, we, that's right. we assume that over a course of 120, 30, 40 years that a lot has changed. And sometimes when you look at one of your photographs and compare it to the something from 1874, there's not much difference. So... I just wonder if you can kind of help us set the scene. And well, first off, tell us a little bit about why you got interested in doing this work uh, and particularly about the Custer expedition. Sure. I moved to Custer in 1998. My wife was from the Black Hills earlier in her life, and we decided to come back here from elsewhere and uh, uh, just thought this was a a great place to to start from and uh, do the photography thing and the art thing, which my wife does. And kind of fell into book publishing through this project. Uh, some some of your uh, listeners may recall a book called uh, Yellow Ore, Yellow Hair, Yellow Pine, which was published by South Dakota State University back in the 1970s. And it was a wonderful book. Uh, Dr. Progalski put that together from their forestry department. He worked with a photographer named Richard Sowell. And they you know, were the first ones that I'm aware of anyway to come up with this idea of taking the Custer Expedition photographs that were Uh, taken by this photographer, William Henry Illingworth, in 1874, the very first pictures of the Black Hills, and going out and trying to figure out where those were taken. And I I got to speak to to, uh, Dr. Donald Krugelski once before he passed away, you know, 20 years ago. And he told me in the 50s, he would take his family on vacation, and they'd be looking for these sites. And, and, uh, you know, they found a lot of them, they couldn't find all of them. But um, but that book was sort of an inspiration. And and, uh, long story short, by the year 2000, it was out of print. South Dakota yeah. State, we had some meetings. They said, hey, I guess we're not going to reprint this again. Uh, we had talked to them along with other people who were interested in this subject. And I always knew Custer had, 
been in my neighborhood here. I live north of town about a mile and, um, you know, kind of had this vague idea, I think, like most people do. They were out there somewhere in the Black Hills. But uh, when I comprehended that some of the photo sites were almost, almost literally, I can see some rocks from my house that are in one of the pictures. I mean, it's from a different angle, but, you know, it really, really intrigued me. And uh, um, we were fortunate to find a group of people, Ernie and myself and a couple of other uh, historians, Jack McCullough and uh, Joe Sanders from Rapid City, like us amateur historians that were interested in this. And we started collaborating and um, it really got into my blood. The idea of replicating a historic photo was just something I found fascinating and over time, you know, re- refine my technique. But yeah. uh, and then I found out the wagon train had gone by less than a half mile from my house, eventually, thanks to their maps and so on that we later okay. you know, put together. So, yeah, yeah. it was a, a process, but that's where I started. So you're using a mix of the Army maps that were produced by the Army cartographer right. uh, at the time, which I certainly is one of the main purposes of that expedition to, to get some precision on the map. In fact, I, I was traveling recently in a museum and I saw a map of the United States produced as a replica of a map produced in 1872 or three. And the Black okay. Hills were in Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, to top that off, I think there might've been three Black Hills over time. I mean, there was definitely a Wyoming Black Hills, which shows up on really early maps and that often got confused then with the we'll right. call now the South Dakota Black Hills. So right. that could be some of what you were seeing there. But yeah, one of the, you know, one of the sources we use, uh, you know, a diarist, we love these diaries by people who are right there when Custer yeah. you know, rolled into the Black Hills. Uh, he said, you know, the on- only authentic map of that section of the country is a blank piece of paper. You know, that wasn't quite literally true. There'd been, you know, the Warren expedition, there'd been a couple of other explorers around the, Bla- the Black Hills in the 1850s, but not, not a not dedicated to mapping the Black Hills and uh, like this one was. Was that the sole purpose of the expedition? What, what no, was Custer's not orders? really. I mean, it was uh, it was one of the rationales and those kind of shifted and so on over yeah. time. Uh, there was a uh, Sheridan, uh, you know, claimed they were uh, the Lakota were raid- raiding the uh, settlements down in Nebraska and maybe they were coming out of the Black Hills. So that was one discussion that was had even with President Grant at the time, according to one record. And and so he thought maybe we needed a fort on the west side of the Black Hills to kind of monitor uh, the the Indians' activities in Lakota. And uh, so that was one thing. It was an unknown territory, which, you know, this is really was one of the final places to kind of get filled in on, on the big maps uh, mm-hmm. back at that time. So it was sort of a logical progression from that standpoint. But I think I think it's fair to say the official rationale was to find a site for a fort on the western edge of the Black Hills unofficially. Well, and officially the map as well, but unofficially, you know, we got to talk about gold at some point. And uh, sure. that was definitely on, on people's minds as the expedition headed out. It's not a typical army expedition that calls a, a geologist, I think, from Yale or Harvard and says, hey, can you come along? Right. I mean, they had some specialists that were along yeah. for certain purposes. The chief geologist was uh, Newton Winchell. He was from the University of Minnesota, where he had just started this department. Uh and there, okay. there were some synergies with, with Minnesota and St. Paul. But, yeah, they had um, – his name's escaping me now. But, uh, yes, uh, Yale couldn't send anybody, but they sent George Bird Grinnell instead. I mean, Grinnell, as an underling yeah. sort of who, of course, became in his own right a very famous uh, individual in the West and right. did a lot of good good uh, writing and so on that we value today. So, uh, yeah, they uh, 
you know, the whole thing about gold, there was a lot of debate that the, the geologist Winchell, you know, I think at one point said he hadn't really seen any. And so there was a lot of confusion after the mm-hmm. expedition about how much gold there really was in the Black Hills. And that was another whole sort of can of worms. Well, the, the newspapers almost immediately after the expedition gets back to Fort Abraham Lincoln, right. which is, which is uh, central North Dakota, they're pulling up the grass and there's uh, yeah, gold exactly. dust underneath the roots of the grass. It's, yeah, it's grass, kind of... the gold from the roots on down, you know, that whole uh, right. conjures up this image that we're chuckling about here, you know, about pulling up some 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 grass and seeing gold. Right. Yeah, and actually, you know, a scout, uh, Charlie Reynolds, uh, they escorted him to the southern edge of the Black Hills a couple days after gold was discovered. They were sending scouts back at intervals with mail and reports just to let the outside world know, hey, we're okay, and here's what's been going on. And so he was able to get to Fort Laramie, uh, you know, within a, a day or a day or two ride overnight. And uh, they had a telegraph station there. So actually, the gold discovery was, you know, telegraphed out and, and uh, in the papers oh, yeah, before the right. expedition even got back to Fort Lincoln. Yeah, it was quite a technological advance, you might say, that allowed mm-hmm. that to happen at the time. So, uh, yeah. yeah, even before they they got back to Fort Lincoln. Another one of the specialists along on the ride is the person that you're uh, working with in many ways, uh, William Illingworth, who you've right. already mentioned. Uh, who is this fella? How did you come become aware of his photographs? Again, that earlier book, uh, I had a copy of that book by South Dakota State, and they had reproduced uh, copies of his of most of his pictures, uh, not all of mm-hmm. his Black Hills stuff. But uh, and uh, so William Illingworth was a St. Paul, Minnesota-based photographer. He, uh, over the course of his career, um, you know, shot pictures in the Dakotas. Uh, he was up in North Dakota and over into the Montana gold fields in 1866, kind of as working with another photographer, maybe almost like an apprentice, but he was definitely involved. So he had a little experience on that sort of effort and expedition where they were they were taking wagons and people out looking for gold in Montana across North Dakota at the time, or that was Dakota territory, of course. Um, and then a lot of experience around uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, up into uh, eastern present-day North Dakota. He visited Sioux Falls in 1872 and took some photos of the falls there. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was very accomplished, and we're not exactly sure how he came to, to uh, the attention of uh, Captain William Ludlow, was the chief engineer on the 1874 Black Hills Expedition. He's the one that contracted with Illingworth said, you know, hey, we need some pictures and uh, would you come along? And so they they made a deal to supply a wagon for Illingworth. It looks different yeah. than the other covered wagons, so we can pick it out in a lot of the pictures. But oh, yeah, he was, sure. yeah, yeah, he's got a kind of a dark wagon, you might call it. It was more of a kind of shaped like an ice cream truck or something as opposed to the typical covered wagon. So it's okay. pretty distinctive and we can, we can see that in a number of the pictures, uh, even when it's really tiny in the background. But uh, he, he came and uh, brought his uh, glass plate negative uh, stereo camera, the wet plate camera, as they called it, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, started taking pictures as they came down from Fort Lincoln. So Illingworth came down from Fort Lincoln with the rest of the expedition, started shooting pictures. I think the first one was on July 6th at one of their camps up just over the border in North Dakota there. And, and okay. uh, eventually, uh, as they reach the Black Hills, he begins taking more and more photos and uh, in all, I think he exposed that we're going to, it's kind of hard to get an exact count, but we're going to say around 75 plates. And some of those are similar images to others, but most of them are unique on their own. And uh, again, okay. he was shooting in, in stereo most of the time. So he had a camera with two lenses on it, took two pictures side by side on one piece of glass. And these could be printed to a card or transferred to a photographic paper and put on a card and then held into one of these viewers like you might have seen in your grandma's parlor or in a museum 
where you yeah. see an image in stereo. And if people don't know what that's about, think about the Viewmaster that a lot of us had when we were kids. It's the same idea. So yeah. this is a very popular uh, media back in the 1800s and early 1900s. And a lot of photographers shot in stereo. He did shoot a few single plate images as well. So that's an attempt to kind of get it into a three-dimensional view. Yeah, you have the view a 3D graph, image you go, can... you know, objects in the foreground kind of rise up in front. And you often can kind of see he was going for that stereo effect by uh, composing his photos so that there was like a boulder or a tree stump, let's say, for example, right. in the foreground. And then okay. you know, distant background objects look like they're way behind it. You know, it gives you that stereo uh, yeah. effect, which was very dramatic. Yeah. He was at the peak of his, you know, I think his skill in 1874, he, uh, there was another photographer in the black Hills in 1875 and many in 1976 or several by then, none of them supersede his, his, the quality of his pictures. And it was a very technical okay. process with this wet plate processing and had to be done very precisely. So he was right. Good at well, it. let's, let's talk about the process just a little bit. Sure. I mean, if he's going to take a photograph, there's one Real, well, there's several really majestic photographs of mm -hmm. him up on some kind of hillside so we can gain some elevation. One's right. over the camp. Another one's over the wagon train as the expedition is moving through. Yep. That's not just something, boy, let me clamber up the side of the hill and snap this right. photo and then run back down and catch up. I mean, this is a, yeah. this is a complicated process. So what yeah. would that process be? Yep. Yeah, and some of what I'm sharing here I've learned from there are people who still practice this technique, Dave Rambo being one of them in, in, uh, in Wisconsin, uh, uh, who have told me about how they do that or have watched them work and and then reading about other pioneering photographers. Illingworth didn't leave us very little in written form, a few titles scratched into negatives and so on, you know, but not mm -hmm. much else. But we know he was using the same techniques. And so, again, he's starting with a clean piece of glass and when he was away from his wagon, he had a portable dark tent as other pioneering photographers did. It kind of folded up in canvas box. You might think of that and uh, probably we're assuming hauled it on a mule or a horse and uh, could then get up to these elevations. I mean, he climbed some serious peaks yeah. uh, east of Custer. He's up on some rocks that I climb up on now. And I'm like, this isn't fun at all. You know, you're a little <laughs> worried about it collapsing or something, you know, it's, uh, but he was up there. And uh, so uh, he sets up his camera, I assume, you know, on the tripod, of course, and uh, then this dark tent nearby where he could then, he first had to prepare the negative by putting chemicals on it, washing it in a bath and so on, and putting it in a holder and then moving it to the camera before it evaporated or dried out in the heat or whatever. My understanding mm -hmm. is he would have had just a few minutes to do that if the negative dried out before he exposed it, the chemicals weren't sensitive anymore and then the shot would be ruined. So, so make the picture and the photo could have been a 10 second, 15 second exposure, perhaps depending on the lighting and, uh, and then back to the dark tent and develop the negative where, you know, at least he had the, the benefit of seeing that he had a photo in his hand that, that the, the shot came out, you know, right. but then he had to preserve that glass negative for, you know, another 800 miles back to Fort Lincoln. And uh, so it really is, uh, it's incredible that it, that it worked and, and that these negatives still survive. And as, as you know, they're, they're, most of them reside in the collection of the South Dakota Historical Society. And yes. you know, most of them are in beautiful shape. I mean, there's some degradation over the years or broken glass or whatever, but most of right. them are, are in great shape. And, and we've just yeah. recently you know, applied some technology and got really high resolution scans from those negatives, which are, are featured in our book uh, for the first time. And I've been doing this for, you know, looking at these pictures for 20 years, and that's something I've been after for a long time. 
is getting digital scans right from those negatives. Uh, in the past, we were working with copy prints, and every time you made a film copy and then made a print, you know, you lose a lot of quality. And the detail in these negatives is just really amazing. There's no roads between where he's going and where he's where yeah. he is, and so the bumpy, rocky uh, terrain. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that there were pictures that were broken. Uh, you wonder, you know, you do wonder. Yeah. Um, there's also a box in the collection in Pierre in the, in the museum there in storage that I've seen. I've been allowed to look at, and I think it's probably the box he was carrying out here here in the Black Hills. And it's heavy wood, and then the the glass is in vertical slots that have been you know built into it. And I'm sure you know. So yeah. if you ever see the glass company bringing a window to a house, they're not storing them horizontally. They they're vertical because that's stronger. They're less likely to break. So. And then there may have been some padding or something under it. I don't know in his wagon, but uh, there's one case of a photo where the photo caption doesn't really describe what he printed on the card. And I, you know, I have a theory that that negative might have gotten broken after he wrote the title and he just stuck this other picture in its place because oh, okay. it says he's looking, you know, it's from our camp looking north and it's it's looking east. And I think he would have known the difference between north and east. So you do wonder if there are, you know, there could have been some negatives lost along the way. Was he pretty well up to him on what pictures he took? Yeah, as far as we can tell, he just had, um, you know, I'm assuming discussions with Ludlow about documenting what the landscape looked like. Mm -hmm. uh, but he also uh, was occasionally taking pictures with people in them. Uh, one diary mentions that Billingworth took this photo of the group of officers and, and civil, primary civilians on the expedition. We have copies of that picture, not the glass plate negative, but we have copies of that picture but then the diary goes on to say plus several private views and we've never seen any other photos of you know mm. some officer in front of his tent or whatever uh you know that have ever surfaced that were taken at that campsite which is north of, of rapid city or north and west of Rapids. so um you know again there's this intriguing possibility despite you know i've, I've uh, tried to pound every uh, every archive in the region you know and and keeping my eyes open on all on all fronts for anything like that but uh, yeah. yeah he did take uh, some photos of individuals there's the famous photo of of custer with the grizzly bear and a couple of right. other people in it which is a little bit different than some of his other pictures but mostly he's documenting campsites at the same time getting a shot of what the landscape looks like and then also taking photos of just landscapes, rock formations and mountains and so on. You brought up the grizzly uh, bear yeah. photo and who's in the picture and what had transpired about that. And of course, the sure. person who's in the picture is Custer himself. Yeah, right. Um, well, we haven't talked too much about this, but one of the things I, I treasure about having collaborated with Ernie Graffy, you know, before he and I met, he was already trying to get this this notion together of accumulating every account that was written during the expedition. This might be newspaper reporters. There were four of them, several diaries. We, we found a couple more diaries since the time of our initial collaboration and added those to our books. But uh, so he was literally kind of pasting these in. They, they were all published separately. There's a book over here with some accounts. There's a book over here with newspaper accounts. And he was uh, getting this notion of following on one given day what everybody said, what everybody wrote you know, right. from the highest General Custer to the lowest private who kept a diary, you know. And so on August 7th, 1874, and this is about uh, when they're about halfway through the Black Hills, they'd already been down and found gold at the area near Custer, South Dakota, where the town would be founded later. Um, you know, a lot of things had transpired already. They're sort of on their way out of the Black Hills. They got out, you know, on the 15th. So a week later, they'd be exiting the Black Hills. But on August 7th, you know, again, these diaries 
tell us what's going on in the picture, what happened before the picture. And they're literally saying, you know, this grizzly bear reared up and Custer, you know, filled it full of lead, you know, is basically what they're saying. Uh, but several people were shooting at it. And, and, uh, um, and so the, this large grizzly was shot uh, on uh, the, the, the South Fork of Rapid Creek. You know, uh, it's about two miles north of Rochford, give or take. You know, it's out in the middle of a uh, big parcel yeah. of private property there. But, they were in camp when they shot the bear? The, the bear no, not, came, they, were, the they were moving, but that's where they established camp. It was middle okay. of late afternoon. So uh, okay. I think they just kind of decided it's a good place to stop around a, on, a, on a nice creek and there's plenty of grass and so on. So. Yeah. I think the bear being shot, I'm speculating a little bit, but I think that's why they stopped. Uh, okay. I'm guessing Custer wanted a picture of that pretty bad. And so they Darn stopped, right. you know, and so. Uh, <laughs> Who wouldn't? So it, yeah. yeah, yeah, I guess so. And uh, so Illingworth, you know, did actually take two pictures of that. Uh, you can kind of tell them real quickly because uh, Colonel Ludlow over on the right is standing in one of them and seated in the other. It's one way to kind of tell them apart, but uh, okay. two stereo images of that and, uh, um, and, uh, we get a glimmer of, again, kind of behind the scenes with, with Custer and maybe Illingworth a little bit. Custer wrote to his wife, Libby about shooting the bear. I mean, he wrote her a letter, which was sent back by Indian scouts, you know, before the expedition got back okay. and he refers to a picture. So, uh, isn't this picture superb? You know, he says uh, to his yeah. wife in this letter. And so we gather that Illingworth was able to actually make a print and give it to him. And then he mailed it home, you know, I mean, essentially, wow. and, uh, yeah. it's kind of interesting little details like that, that we're always trying to squeeze out of the accounts that we've put together from sure. all these sources, you know, you can kind of start to put those things together. Custer's in the picture. Ludlow's in the picture. The other person that's in the picture that I think is a fascinating individual is Bloody Knife. That's right. Yeah. Custer's chief Indian scout, Bloody Knife. Amazing individual. They called him a half-breed back then, half a Rikara, half Sioux. Custer would have been lost, literally, without his Indian scouts, including Bloody Knife. And there, he had over 70 Indian scouts, so they were all you know, of value. And there were several primary scouts, Goose being another one, okay. who... Uh, literally guided him to the Black Hills. You think about it today, you just get on a highway and head, you know, in a certain direction. But back then, uh, it's been compared to being at, on, on the ocean at sea. You know, there's really no, very few landmarks. So one time, you know, up north of the Black Hills, they're, they're looking at a, just a little tiny point of land sticking up, you know, like 15 miles away. And they're on this big open plain. And the scout uh, goose, in this case, says, you know, when we get to that little hill you see just barely sticking up there, we'll find wood and water. And that's what they really needed out on the prairie. They needed wood and water. And they get there and everybody's kind of like, oh, this is just more, you know, kind of barren desert middle of the summer on the prairie. And then they come around a corner and sure enough, here's this oasis, basically, which they never would have found without the Indian okay. Scout. So, yeah, people like Bloody Knife, uh, very important to Custer right. and, and uh, yep, to the whole expedition. I've read some things where they encountered some perhaps Lakota kind of lurking, watching them, but no, right. no real, you know, giving a battle or any, or any kind of, there weren't any major conflicts. And, you know, this is a whole boy, you know, another whole lecture perhaps, but just in the briefest terms, you know, a lot of, I mean, just going to face it. I, I'm not a big fan of Custer per se, or a big nut about him personally. I'm way more interested in the photographer and a lot of the history that some of the other uh, individuals on this expedition wrote, you know, what what they had to say. But having said that, on this particular expedition in 1874, Custer was not trying to find Indians and kill them. And that's what people kind of assume, you know, that he was always on that uh, uh, mission. And uh, he literally 
you know, he said, I don't know what he did, actually sent out messages to some of the tribal groups that he could reach from Fort Lincoln and say, hey, we're just exploring. We're not looking to cause mm-hmm. trouble. So they did encounter some small hunting parties. The Indian scouts were always way out in front of the expedition, and they were, you know, parlaying with, with these uh, groups. They came across small groups of hunters. And then the biggest, uh, uh, you know, time when they ran into a group of Indians was up in the Black Hills uh, where Deerfield Lake is today, and that's, of course, an artificial lake. But in that valley, Custer's scouts were ahead of the wagon train, and they come back to Custer and say, hey, there's a Lakota village up ahead in this valley. You know, 25 Indians, you know, eight or 10 teepees. And they were able to sneak up on it without the Indians realizing it and actually surround the village. And oh. so, again, if you're thinking about Custer the way a lot of people do, you just assume he was going to start shooting, but he, it was anything but. He wanted yeah. to get information from these Indians about a good travel route through the Black Hills, you know, at that point. He literally on the ground and would be able to guide him. And uh, it's a long story. There's a whole chapter in our book, and I, I won't try to go to, into all of it, but he ended up, they used the word hostage, you know, and that may have had a different meaning back then, but he was holding this yeah. Indian chief named Onestead okay. who guided okay. him then to the valley where the town of Custer is today, basically. The end of the story that's really interesting, to me at least, I think. So we have all these Indian scouts, and a lot of them are Arikara or Re-Indians, and and they're blood enemies of the Lakota or the Sioux because the Sioux have been routinely attacking them along the Missouri River. And just days before the expedition left, there was a conflict where Bloody Knife's, I think it was his nephew, was killed by a raiding band of Sioux. Now, I'm sure it wasn't the same Sioux that were there in the Black Hills, but in their minds, this is our enemy. We're going to get some revenge. So they're literally putting on the war paint and, you know, going into this village and Custer's like, hold it. Don't kill anybody. We do not want to cause any, you know, he was really trying to restrain them. And he did. Right. And what he did in the end, once they got down to the valley where the town of Custer is, uh, and then camped where the gold was found east of Custer. This would have been about a week later. He lets this chief go under cover of darkness, gives him his horse and his rifle back. And then again, this is recorded by multiple sources. This isn't just Custer saying this, mm-hmm. newspaper reporters and the like. And the, the chief took off under cover of dark because Custer knew he wouldn't be able to hold these, these uh, scouts back. And right. they were so angry about it, bloody knife literally rode at the back of the column for the rest of that day. He was so angry that this, this chief had escaped their clutches. So yeah. there's a, there's multiple stories, talk, multiple reports of that whole incident. It's really fascinating. Interesting. Well, the, yeah, the dynamic amongst between the Crow in particular yeah. and, the, and the Northern Lakota. And yeah. Bloody Knife and Sitting Bull know one another. And there's a relationship there that I can't recall the details, but it goes bad and Bloody Knife Hate sitting bull. I mean, the personal yeah, enemy is Yeah, I, I'm not fully informed on it either, but my understanding is as a child, Bloody Knife really, he lived in a, a Sioux village, but he was half a Rikara, and that must have been very difficult, it sounds like. So yeah. um, some people will say, well, the Sioux were fighting with the Rikara, and, you know, they were pushing them out, and, you know, therefore, you know, they took the land from the Rikara, and then we took the land from the Sioux, and maybe that mm-hmm. justifies it in some way, and I certainly don't buy that argument. I'm just pointing out there was a lot of conflict between different groups, and uh, right. yeah. Yeah, so uh, well, the dynamics yeah. are not always what you expect. That's true. Uh, they're all human, right? That's I, which right. I think is the larger point. We can all. That's a very good all, thing about it. I all think. of humanity has its enmities and its passions, yeah. and yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, yep, yep, human condition, and yeah, exactly. Let's dive into the photographs a little bit. Your okay. current photographs, and uh, from 
in comparison to Illingworth's 1874 photographs, I guess the big picture is, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> how has the Black Hills changed? I mean, yeah. you've been doing this quite a long time. Yeah. Now, <laughs> and you look at the black and white stereo views of 1874, and you look at the photographs from the same location that you can buttonhole down to the yep. pin uh, detail today along the route and in other places. What, what would you say is the largest change uh, about the Black Hills? The one thing that jumps out, to a lot of people right away is that it, there are more trees, uh, you know, that, uh, and that was really the case back in, you know, 2000 when I was shooting these first images and I was doing that on film back then. It's all digital mm-hmm. now, of course, but on, so our first book, I mean, that was like a, just a, a natural conclusion to make. You look at this picture, there's relatively few trees. You look at this picture, there's trees growing up in the foreground as well as in the background. The forest is much denser on the hillsides. And, and that's still true to some extent, but it's much less the case than it was. So it's changed again. The forest is going okay. through this evolution, and we had this uh, mountain pine bark, uh, mountain yeah. pine beetle epidemic, you know, that lasted over a decade, uh, ending around what 2017 or so, and uh, that killed thousands of trees. And once they died, if they were in an area that could be logged, then they were logged as well. So you know, not exactly overnight, but in a pretty short time, you had vast areas that were cleared of trees. Those aren't always in the picture that Illingworth took. Sometimes you'll see remnants of that, but I was literally at some places where I'm, you know, just last year when I shot some of the new pictures again over for the new edition that we revised to all new pictures in there. And I'm looking this way and there's still a lot of trees here, but I just, if you just turn this way where Illingworth didn't take a picture, there's no trees. It was very oh. interesting, but there are some photo sites where, or they've been replaced by uh, seedlings and maybe up to 10 feet high now because they've been growing for a decade or so since the end of the, the beetle epidemic, uh, you know, in some mm. places it, it hit a lot earlier. So um, that, that jumps out the change in the forest. I guess I could abbreviate that too. Um, otherwise occasionally you'll see, you know, you see road development, you see some homes, not so much along the expedition route. It just happens to not be in areas that got heavily developed, like, you know, right in the town of Custer or, or rapid city and so on. And when the first book came out in 2002, I, I sort of was championing that we needed to thin the forest, you know, and we need a little more logging, not necessarily clear cutting, but at least thinning the forest to, you know, suppress fire. And I, I didn't mention that, but the reason there are more trees is because we were getting really good at putting out forest fires for over a hundred years. And so that allowed the forest to continue to grow and get denser up to a, a kind of an unhealthy uh, uh, status. And, yeah. and uh, that's one reason the, the, the beetle was easy, e- so easily spread is because the trees were so close together at that point, they could just jump from tree to tree over the course of seasons. So I'm, you know, I'm a little more conservative on, on that. And I'm worried we're cutting too many trees in the, in the forest. And, you know, we listen to the, the forest scientists, they say we're, we're hitting, you know, we're going to run out of wood. So uh, I, I hate to see that happen, but. Uh, so just yeah, between the pictures that you've taken in the, when you first started this and the ones you're yeah. taking the last couple of years, you can see the changes. We, uh, we did a few panels in the new book where we have 1870, you know, usually it's old photo, new photo. There are a few mm-hmm. panels at the end of that section where we use the 1874 photo and then the 1974 photo from South Dakota State University, and then my 2001 photo, and then the 2022 photo. And in some of those, you can see that whole cycle. And I'm starting to get to be an old guy, of course, but having seen that cycle uh, is is pretty amazing. You know, like no trees, huge trees after 100 years, 
and then the pine bark beetle, and then no trees again. It's it's uh, it's very interesting. Huh. You do see that in a few a few places where that whole thing played out. I suppose it's too simplistic to say nature takes care of itself. Or well, you know, it, it does when we push it too far. I agree with that. Push it you too know, far, I mean, yeah. the, the beetle was a, a great alternative to fire. I'll just say that. I mean, in terms of somebody yeah. who actually lives here, uh, it would have been a, you know, we had a couple of huge oh, right. fires at Jasper Fire in 2000 and so on. I've compared it to a dam. You keep pushing, you know, building a higher and higher dam. You know, the, the trees are getting denser and denser. And unless you're cutting them uh, actively, yeah. Eventually, you're going to have a fire, and then you're going to have a big problem. So, yeah, the beetle might have been a blessing in disguise. Other than the thickness of the forest or the forest itself, the roads, are the roads along trails that existed at the time? In other words, is there kind of the roads were built on natural paths already? Some some of them follow, uh, well, just backing up a little bit, Custer was in many cases following Indian trails, not always, but uh, he was able to establish, you know, we can see... Um, they were dragging travois, you know, the, the, the two teepee poles behind a, a horse or whatever, and that made a made a path. And they could follow yeah. that sometimes, but they were also blazing their own trail completely. I mean, to the extent of cutting trees down, moving boulders, leveling areas that were too steep for the wagon to go over, you know, amazing amount of work. And yeah. uh, in, on some days in some locations, as early, the earliest miners came into the hills, they were literally trying to follow Custer's track, like, uh, you know, right to the, the campsite where they found gold. That's uh, what happened. But then gradually people said, oh, wait a minute, we can go over here and it's easier. Or we go down this valley. It's a little easier. So there are yeah. places where roads today follow right on Custer's trail or at least within 100 yards of it. They might be on the other side of the valley yeah. and places where highways follow that trail. Generally, as road building advanced, they, they look for the easiest route. And then when they can't find the easiest route, they just cut a big chunk of a mountain out and make a big level spot and build a four-lane right. highway. I mean, that's what we see. That's what Norbert well, between, did. Like, yeah. say, between Crazy Horse Memorial, if you know where that is, in Custer. Yeah. Uh, that's roughly on Custer's Trail, a couple of directions there. Uh, okay. they, they turned left at uh, about halfway up there and went west, or west as, they, as they left. And that's in the area where my home is. And uh, there are actually wagon ruts below the highway. We've, we've just added those to the new edition of the book. We found some ruts that we, they're right on where Ludlow's map shows their trail. Okay. They were surely used by other travelers. There was lots of other traffic, of course, but these are beautiful, big, deep grooves that had huge trees growing out of them, which were then killed by the mountain pine beetle, which probably helped make them visible to us this, at this time. Wow. And they're away from the highway by a good measure. So yeah, and they're on they're on Forest Service, so I haven't really talked about this, but you know, the whole point of the book is to have people be able to navigate along this trail if they wish, or read about mm-hmm. it in their armchair and say, "I'm going to go out to that spot," and there's GPS mm-hmm. coordinates and so on. So those yeah. those ruts and the photo sites and everything are are mapped and documented. So hopefully for posterity as well as anybody that just wants to go out and take a look. Right. Well, that's that's a good segue into what I was going to ask you about next. How oh, how does one best use the book? Let's yeah. say you're very ambitious and you've got yes. some friends and you want to backpack for several days or you just want to pop onto a spot. Uh, yeah, you know, that's the a good of way of looking at it. it. It can work either way, I think. Uh, you know, we did design it to just be a book you can sit and read if you'd like. Mm-hmm. And maybe you put some markers in where, you know, maybe you want to go look at something later, but you'll have a better understanding of what took place before and after, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you can certainly... Uh, punch these into a, you know, your, your phone and, uh, it'll, it'll take you there. I mean, use caution, don't just follow, you know, we all know about following the GPS blindly, but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, you can certainly do what you just suggested and follow segments of the trail. 
Um, we try to point out where it's going on private property. We don't provide coordinates and we, we really respect okay. our, our relationship with the uh, landowners who have yes. given us permission to research and you know, we couldn't do it without them. So we're, mm-hmm. we honor that. Um, but you can, uh, a lot of it's on public land about, I think we've estimated 80% of the trail is on public land in, in okay. the Black Hills, outside the Black Hills. Uh, it's a little different story. That's more private property, but the Castle Creek Valley is a great example of a place that's still, you know, relatively undeveloped. A lot of that is forest service. So it hasn't had the, you know, towns and houses and stuff built uh, with a few exceptions and looks a lot like it did back in 1874. There's a big camp there where they stayed for two days. This is the camp near where they encountered the Lakota village. So there was a lot of interesting events. There's about seven or eight photo sites right around that. And a couple more farther back up the road that are fantastic, including the one on the cover of the book. So that's a really great place to spend a day or two, and you can camp up there too. Uh, uh, and Deerfield Lake is nearby, and so on. Uh, I always kind of point people that direction. And then another really nice area. It's more there's a little more private land, but still plenty of public access. Is just east of Custer, where they they camped there for five days. They called that their permanent camp. I mean, they kind of knew they were where they wanted to be. They had found gold. Uh, the photographers taking pictures like crazy all around there. And so that's another good spot to to spend a little time if you really want to dive in deep without following every last uh, inch of the trail, which we, we did sure. try to document. Well, I think I recall Custer went up Black Elk Peak. Did, yes, uh, that's right. Did, did Illingworth go up there? No, not all the way. Uh, okay. uh, no, he did not apparently go on that little expedition. Uh, I think they probably would have been traveling too fast is part of the problem. But, uh, yeah. uh, but uh, he did go... So if you know where the town of Custer is and like, say, Stockade Lake, east of Custer, I mean, we're talking about the area straight north from that zone. Uh, He went up north towards the Needles. So you can see the Needles off in the distance in some of his pictures. And uh, he definitely went up those valleys. Uh, There's a place called the Meeker Ranch, which uh, was a private ranch, but was uh, Elk, Elk Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation helped transfer that to the Forest Service, you know, 20 years ago. And so that's all public land. And Ellingworth was operating in there. And I think he was trying to record Black Elk Peak or, you know, as they called it, Harney Peak back then, yeah. uh, but also got shots of the needles and uh, that area. Uh, so, um, okay. yeah, he didn't get up to Black Elk, but uh, uh, several individuals did, of course, and wrote about their experiences up there that day. Is he, uh, then they trekked back to uh, Bismarck. When is Illingworth, what does he do with all these classified negatives? Does he publish them? What yeah, as far as we can piece together, you know, they had a, they had train service to Bismarck and Fort Lincoln was just across the Missouri River from Bismarck. So it's it, it sounds very much like he got on a train and got right back to St. Paul okay. uh, within, a, I'm forgetting, a couple, three days of that. The, the newspaper in St. Paul says, you know, something to the effect of Illingworth is back and printing his pictures for sale soon at this gallery that okay. he was, uh, you know, cooperating with. Um, they had a fire like that week, there was a fire that burned the gallery, but he had taken his negatives out for some reason. And it's just like a miracle, you know, that any of this survives. So, um, but eventually they, he was printing these or having them printed. I'm not, we're not exactly sure on this nice card stock that has his name on one end and a sort of a title underneath and it says views of the black Hills on one end. And, uh, you know, we have no idea how many copies he sold or anything. Uh, they're a collector's item, obviously. I've got, there's about 50, there's 55 of them in his official set. Uh, he okay. did change the content of certain cards. I mean, one and one said it's this this number and this title has this picture. And then all of a sudden he printed a different picture on the same title. He was, you know, a little bit loose about that sometimes. But anyway, for somebody like me, obviously I'm interested in that. Yeah. So I'm always... Uh, watching out for those. But so, yeah, he was busy. That's how he was making his living along with shooting other assignments and so on. We presume up in, in portraiture and so on. Yeah. 
Um, he got in a little trouble, a little story about uh, Captain Ludlow was supposed to get a set of pictures from, you know, Illingworth, and he gave him part of a set. And it's not exactly clear what the timing and the mechanics of that were, but Illingworth, or I'm sorry, Ludlow is is upset. He doesn't have a full set. And so he ends up kind of dragging Illingworth into court and trying to get a settlement or getting him, you know, fined or something. And I think what was going on, and I'm speculating, so I always try to say I'm making this, you know, but I think Illingworth was concerned if the government got copies, they would then anybody could reproduce them. You know, they would be copied widely. And this was a problem already back then with photographers would copy other photographers work and just print their own mm-hmm. name on there. I mean, it happened, it happens today. So sure. um, it was a problem. And, and so Illingworth goes into court and he produces a letter and here he had met with Custer like a week earlier, taken his portrait and we can still find this portrait that Illingworth took of Custer. It's in our book now too whatever date this was. And then a week later, the court date and the judge says, Oh, Custer says you did your work. Okay. Good enough for me. You're off you go then, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and Ludlow is left holding the bag with, well, not holding the bag, but only a partial set of images. And to this day, those were then eventually transferred to the national archives. And if you call the national archives and want to get a set of pictures from the Custer expedition, they don't have a full set. They just have these, this partial set that Illingworth turned over. So so was that it's, different it's kind of, then than what uh, we have? No, they're the same images, and I, same. Okay. I don't know that there's any logic to which ones he gave Ludlow that he and which ones he didn't. Uh, you know, okay. it's just uh, just a partial set. Again, the timing and, and when he was producing them and so on, we don't have a lot of detail on that. So, uh, but it's just kind of a, a footnote that uh, yeah, that Illingworth what he had done was, uh, and the judge pointed this out, he had given sets to the officers, and so there was like this idea he did fulfill his obligation to the government by providing copies to the officers. He just didn't give Ludlow his whole set. And there's a, there's a little mystery there. We, we don't have a little mystery. Information on. The camaraderie is interesting. One of the photographs, of course, is I think it's called the drinking party. Yes. And uh, it's, it's a bunch of officers and men sitting yep. inside this tent with champagne bottles. Yep. Or what appears many, to be many champagne, champagne bottles. bottles, many, many champagne bottles. And yeah. one of the officers is president Grant's son. That's right who's on that expedition. So interesting cast of characters from, from, uh, yeah, that took place the same day that Custer was climbing black elk peak that evening. You know, he didn't get back oh. till one in the morning. So there's, you could infer that maybe it was going on in his absence. And I think that's uh, a fair assertion. They're goofing off while we, the boss uh, is gone. Yeah. 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 And, uh, just real quick in the, in the revised edition, we have a, I found a site that I think, is very likely the site. I can never declare that. It doesn't look exactly like it, but there's just a few rocks on one side. And we're really looking forward to having our readers let us know, do you think this is it or not? Yeah. Um, but it's right in the town site of Custer where they, that's where their camp was when that picture was taken on, it was July 31st, 1874. You know, we know the date. It really looks like it to me. Back in 2002, but we didn't have Google Earth, and that's what got me to this spot. Looking on Google mm-hmm. Earth, I can look at satellite pictures, and, and it. Uh, so we were about a block away, and this is, you know, I'll just say real quick. Uh, there's probably five sites like that from 2002. You reevaluate, you go look again. The pine bark beetle has taken down a bunch of trees. Now you can see things that you couldn't see before because there was a big forest. Well, mm-hmm. drinking party is kind of like that. Just better, better uh, information. And uh, 20 years go by, and you refine what you discovered earlier. And so we moved right. it about a block, a block okay. east, and put that in okay. the book. Well, Paul, how can uh, folks find your book? 
Um, it's uh, getting out to local bookstores here in the Dakotas, South Dakota, mm-hmm. over in Sioux Falls at Zambro's uh, Book Mitzi's in Rapid City, the Journey Museum. Other museums will be carrying it. We just it just came out a few weeks ago, so it does take some time. I'm the I'm the publisher as well as the uh, yeah. <laughs> the photographer, so uh, only so much time in the day. But we're also selling my website is is just my name paulhorstead.com. I sign and ship okay. from here. Uh, yeah. It'll be on Amazon in the near future, but. Uh, and hopefully, you know, another outlet such as the maybe even in peer at the historical society, we'll see. But uh, yeah. so we're uh, yeah, we're just busy, just getting going on that distribution thing. But uh, we're excited to have it out and, and okay. excited to share it with people. I, I have donated copies to the Sioux Falls and Rapid City libraries and with more to come. So if anybody wants to just go see it, they can shoot that as well. Great. Well, and I'd be remiss to say the original Illingworth black uh glass plate photographs we've scanned and they're online at the state archive yes, website so absolutely uh, awesome resource can, uh, download those and take a look for themselves yeah and, uh, yeah watch the attribution though uh, attribute those to that's the right illingworth uh who applied his skill and his hard work in yeah. creating those photographs no. for you to enjoy so i if i can close with this statement it's sure. i owe illingworth so much if i could do anything else for him I, I uh, did pay for his tombstone about 15 years ago. I got to know one of his descendants and his grave was unmarked. He, he committed oh. suicide in 1893. Oh, you know, yeah. there was an economic downturn. It's a yep. sad story, but he left us so much that, uh, yeah, I really owe him a lot. So well, wonderful. Uh, Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, pass along our, our congratulations to your colleague and all the hard yeah. work for the design. I can say that you know, the, the, the work is something Oh, but, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, my wife Camille Reiner is also, you know, uh, did most of the design work, and yeah, yeah. We, I couldn't do it without her either. So it's a pretty small operation, but we uh, would put this up against anything that's out there, and look forward to hearing from readers if uh, they have any questions, comments. I love to love to hear it, and I'll be doing some talks around the state as well in the coming weeks and months. So great. hopefully, we'll get to connect at one of those. Thank Thanks, you, Paul, for joining History Six Hundred Five. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.